Welcome to House Highlights, a weekly Facebook livecast and podcast focused on Maryland politics. I'm Eric Ludke, Majority Leader of the Maryland House of Delegates. And uh, first of all, before I go on with my intro, I do have to say for those of you watching live on Facebook, yes, my Christmas tree is still up. Dawn, my wife, has insisted that we not take it down. She redecorated it, quote unquote, for Valentine's Day. I didn't know that was a thing, but apparently I'm never going to get rid of the tree. Um, so each week on the show, I, I interview one of my amazing colleagues to help you learn more about them and the work they're doing. Uh, you can tune in live each Tuesday at 6 p.m. on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Eric for Maryland. You can watch recorded interviews on Facebook or listen to them in podcast format on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever other weird non-Spotify or iTunes podcast program you use. Um, this week, we are highlighting Delegate Jazz Lewis. Jazz is a lifelong Prince Georgian who lives in Glen Arden uh, with his wife and their brand new baby. Uh, he is a double turk with uh, deep political roots in the county and state. He's also a superstar in Annapolis. He serves, uh, uh, he, he, he has been serving in, in committee leadership for a while. Um, and we just found out he'll be, he'll be switching uh, to a new committee, which maybe he'll, he'll hit on later. Um, but uh, more importantly and more prominently, he is the chair of the House Democratic Caucus. And on top of all of that, uh, I, I will vouch for the fact that he's just an all-around good guy. So it won't surprise you to learn that, that he's an Eagle Scout. <laughs> he's a boy. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Jazz. Thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, it's, it's nice uh, seeing another person who still has holiday stuff up. Uh, I'm, I'm in the basement, so you can't see my upstairs. But <laughs> uh, it's good to know I'm not the only one. I, I think Dawn has only kept it up because people have been making fun of me for having a Christmas tree up for so long. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this one's going to last into the into next year. So <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, thanks for having me. What's that? Go ahead. Uh, I was just saying thanks for having me on. Happy. To be yeah, here. of course, absolutely, man. Um, so let's let's start out just with the softball. Like, tell us about yourself. Where'd you grow up? What do you do outside of legislative work? And and why'd you run for office? Yeah, so I'm uh, born and raised here in gorgeous Prince George's County, like Eric is, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, he was born in Fort Washington, uh, mm -hmm. though he went to Montgomery County after that. Um, uh, I uh, went to University of Maryland uh, uh, for undergrad. Uh, I was originally planning to major in architecture. My, my dad was an electrician, so I thought I was going to do a little Property Brothers type thing and work with my dad because uh, I used to work with him doing a lot of odd jobs growing up. And mm -hmm. um, uh, I, would, I would love to say that, you know, President Obama's election inspired me to get into politics, but that's not exactly true. Um, I started paying attention a little bit more, um, but I voted. I, I, I didn't actually volunteer. I didn't know how at the time. I don't come from a politically engaged family or anything like that. Um, but when I did get involved was uh, after the recession uh, affected the state legislature and um, you know they proposed tuition increases. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked three jobs. I played my guitar at local churches. I worked at the government printing office. I worked for the US Coast Guard for a period of time, all in like intern office automation roles uh, to help pay my way. And I had a Pell Grant that paid for like a quarter uh, so between those odd jobs and my mom uh, filling the rest, that's how I got by. So when the legislature had uh, proposed increasing tuition, essentially they would be subsidizing uh, higher ed less because of lost revenues. Right. Um, it would have priced me out of school. So me and some friends who were also working while going to school, 
held a little rally at the Nimbaru Cultural Center. Uh, those who've been to Maryland's campus knows where that's at. Mm -hmm. um, and right about, in the center of campus, right next to the Stamp Student Union. And, yeah. and Nimbaru is like the core of student activism on campus a lot of times. Yeah, like if you've been active on the campus, like you've been in Nimbaru, right? right. And um, so about 600 students came out and uh, someone happened to bring a copy of the school's budget. So we started going through uh, line items for the school, how at the time the school was spending like $30,000 on the flowers for the big M, but we're proposing laying off uh, faculty and, and crazy stuff like that. Wow. Um, so we, we all felt the same way that, look, we had worked hard, got the grades to go to college. Many of us were working our way through college. Uh, it's not our fault that other people broke the economy. And then right. now the ramifications of that was going to be us not, you know, achieving our dream. Um, that was bullshit, right? right. Put it plainly. And um, at the end of the meeting, a friend of mine walked up to the microphone and said, uh, well, tomorrow we're going to march on uh, the president's you know, office and look to Jazz for instructions. And I like never really organized anything prior. Like she threw me underneath the bus. So I right. stayed up all night with uh, a bunch of other activists and a bunch of the different black and Latino, like Greek organizations. Uh, putting together like a 10 point plan <laughs> of what we wanted to accomplish. Uh, uh, but the next day, about 1100 students uh, joined us as we started from Nibiru and then marched over to the president's office. Right. And that's how I first got into politics. Uh, it, was, it was just seeing people power in action. Uh, once we got to the steps of the administration building where the president's office was, I quickly got pushed into uh, President Moat at the time. So this is two presidents mm -hmm. ago. Uh, President Moat's office uh, to see, you know, to negotiate what it would take for us to stand down. And it right. taught me that people power changes things. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated, I became a community organizer, just trying to continue that vein. Like I told you to begin with, I, this wasn't the plan. You know, the plan was uh, do something with my dad, but I caught this organizing bug uh, and it just stuck. Uh, so I became a community organizer in Baltimore with the Good Jobs Better Baltimore campaign that was funded mm -hmm. by SEIU. I did a little bit of union organizing work too. Um, and that experience on the streets, uh, helping folks taught me that, you know, policy can change lives. So um, from there, went back to Maryland, got a master's public policy, um, helped people get elected. There came a vacancy a, a few years ago to, um, you know, uh, step up in the 24th district, which I serve. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I went to the meeting that our local state center had, uh, thinking that I was just going to help whoever they selected, you know, get through the appointment process and help them put together a campaign plan for the election because I was 27 at the time. I just got married, you know, my wife and I had just closed on a house. So it was like right. the last thing, you know, and many of the people who were going to the meeting had worked in the community much longer than I had, right. They were older than me. So, um, uh, the center told me we were meeting at a Ritz uh, Country Inn in Bowie. Uh, anyone from Prince George's knows where this is at. A lot of political meetings happen there. Uh -huh. And she told me to get there at seven o'clock. Uh, I got there at seven. I saw that all the plates had been eaten off of already. And I was a little offended that I was invited to like, you know, the after meeting, not like the right. before meeting. Right. Uh, and when I sat down, she told me that she wanted me to uh, step up and the community leaders agreed that I was the, uh, the person who should um, go for the spot. So that's kind of how it happened. Uh, mm -hmm. 
then, you know, didn't see it before then, uh, was elected again in 2018. Uh, happy to serve with Eric and all my colleagues. Wow, that's I, that's quite a story. That's I've never heard the I've heard bits and pieces. I've never heard the the whole thing through. And it's uh, it is a storied tradition at College Park marching on the president's office. We just had protests <laughs> on campus last year uh, that were pretty extensive. So that's awesome. That's, that's so you, I mean, among other things now, you've done work um, with Steny Hoyer, the, the majority leader of the House of Representatives. And as part of that work, I mean, I, you know, the, the Capitol building is, is kind of, you know, a workplace for everyone who works for, for Congress in some way. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, the, the events we saw last week, the, the, the seditious assault on the Capitol, it must have been incredibly surreal for you, even more than the average person watching that, um, what 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 were you thinking while that was going on, and what are your kind of thoughts on that now? Um, I was furious. Um, like I stated, my, you know, we we have a twelve week old baby, so because of the baby, I've been allowed to work from home, uh, right. and that's been a blessing. Uh, I mean, everyone because of the pandemic, but they're slowly starting to have people come back in. Uh, for different issues, but even for the issues I track for Mr. Hoyer on transit issues, small business, criminal justice reform, um, I didn't have to go in. And uh, we had a number of junior staffers who were uh, inside the majority leader's office in the Capitol, and they had to hide in essentially a large closet uh, and barricade the, the door while they heard people run through the office, uh, breaking stuff. Uh, he, uh, Leader Hoyer just had a portrait of John Lewis, who was one of his best friends in like life, not just Congress. Um, he had a portrait of him commissioned. Uh, they ripped a part of it and, and stole it. We only have like a piece of it left. Uh, they smeared cupcakes all over the wall. I mean, just crazy stuff. But the, the young folks who were like 21, 22, 23 were in the office. Um, the day after uh, we had like a session where people can kind of talk about what they went through and how they felt. And many of them are saying how they were just terrified. They were holding their breath on the other side of the closet so that people wouldn't know that they were in there. They, they barricaded it with like a desk so the door wouldn't open. But you didn't know if these people had weapons, they could shoot into the, the closet. And, right. um, so I'll never forgive them for that, right? I mean, it's, it's all of our nation's capital, but like, you know, for me as one of the senior staffers for him who have to help create a workplace for these folks to go to, in uh, that we weren't able to ensure their safety. And I kind of just had to text them from home. I will never forgive them for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I mean, it was, it was horrific. I think in all of the, the coverage, the, the press coverage that we've seen about members of Congress and to some extent the press and certainly the US Capitol Police. I mean, there are thousands of staffers, many of them fresh out of college, you know, working in this place. And, and that's a story that I feel like is, is being undertold and is often undertold with our politics. Yeah, you know, I mean, we wouldn't, you know, honestly, uh, you know, interns, young people fresh out of college, like they are like, you know, the oil for like the engine for our state legislature as well as, you know, on Congress. And um, I mean, can you, can you imagine, you know, you, you have a son, Colin, right? Um, you know, can you imagine him like 22 years old? He got this great job working for the majority leader um, and he's hiding in a closet, a place where he should probably be the safest possible. Um, it's, you know, it's a shame. I hope that it's the camel that, you know, is, is the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, finally we're starting to see some of the Republicans starting to speak up 
that enough is enough with the extremism mm -hmm. and people need to be held accountable um, because, you know, if, if not, you know, if, if not for the Capitol Police getting them to a secure location, uh, I'm 100% I'm confident we would have seen injured, if not murdered, members of Congress because uh, yeah. that's what they were intending to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you're right. Just you know, a few minutes before we started recording, I saw that Liz Cheney, the third-ranking Republican in the House, uh, had come out and said she's going to vote in favor of impeachment. I hope, I hope it's a landslide after that. We'll see. But well, let's let's uh, let's focus on on happier thoughts and and uh, and state politics and some of the work you're going to be doing this session. One of the bills you've been working on, I know, for a while now, um, and I think you're you're pretty excited about it every time I've talked to you about it. Um, is a bill focused on, on health disparities and, and in particular recreating these uh, health equity resource communities uh, that previously exist in the state. Can you talk a little bit about that bill and, and what it does and, and, and why you're doing it? Sure. So the health equity resource communities uh, bill, it's a long name, is uh, a recreation of the health enterprise zone that the legislature passed under, uh, is really spearheaded by then Lieutenant Governor uh, Anthony Brown, now Congressman Anthony Brown that uh, it's a simple bill. It essentially says that, look, we have areas in both urban and rural Maryland where people can't get access to quality health care, right? Mm -hmm. Be it a primary care physician, be it dentist, uh, you, know, you name it. Um, so if we want to do something about that, we need to incentivize those, uh, those companies to locate in the places that we need most. Um, back then, we allocated $15 million uh, to incentivize uh, you know, these type of businesses to locate in places like Capitol Heights, Maryland, in, um, you know, I think like uh, Lexington Park in St. Mary's, uh, mm -hmm. in East Baltimore, mm -hmm. uh, in other parts of like uh, the Eastern Shore. Uh, and what we saw is that the state saved about $108 million in inpatient care that would normally happen. Right, people who were not going to the uh, the ER mm -hmm. uh, because they were getting that initial treatment that they needed to get, but they just didn't have access to either because of transportation or because they lacked healthcare. Um, and it was a major ad. We're we're bringing that back. We are expanding it too, mm -hmm. um, and it's and it's really exciting because we're working in partnership with Congressman Brown, who's bringing the exact same bill to the U.S. Congress to take it nationwide. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's Maryland leading the way, and it's awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, we will be dedicating uh, one penny on the dollar uh, for alcohol tax, uh, which would generate, uh, in the first two years, it would generate about $14 million because we, you know, would delay um, bars and restaurants because of the pandemic and everything they're, they're dealing with. Uh, but ultimately, after those two years, it would generate about 22 to $24 million uh, that would go to towards, of course, having doctors and dentists located in those areas, uh, but also other people who who get into wellness like yoga and mm -hmm. uh, therapists for for mental health, uh, which is critically important. And a lot of these lower income communities also tend to be very traumatized communities. Right. Uh, so you know we're trying to destigmatize people using mental health. Um, uh, you know the the other thing we add in there, which we didn't have before, is that. Uh, people who go to med school or, you know, school, social work, whatever, they can get their uh, student loans paid for, right, mm -hmm. by working for these companies and locating here, 
right? It's just another incentive to make sure that we're providing as many resources. I mean, a year like we've had where there, the pandemic has showed, you know, uh, the disparities from the inequities of access, uh, it'd be a shame if we didn't do all we could uh, to expand as much access to people as we could. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that that people have a better understanding now of, of the impact of health disparities, having seen, you know, what's happened during COVID, right? The higher COVID infection rates in, in particular in black and brown communities, the, the higher death rates, you know, largely because of the prevalence of pre-existing conditions, right? That that can be addressed, right? Diabetes is a treatable disease, um, but we just have to provide people with, with that health care in the first place, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you're you're also uh, I, I mean another you know issue you've been working on is is uh, is the conversation around the the legalization of recreational cannabis and and that can be you know sometimes a controversial conversation but certainly it's it's uh, you know the the national scene we've seen a lot more states starting to implement it over time but in in your legislation that you've been working on related to it um, one of the interesting things you're trying to do which I don't think other states have really done in a big way is try to address it with a, a racial equity lens in particular. So can you talk a little bit how do you do that? How do you make the legalization of cannabis happen while making sure you you deal with the fact that we've been disproportionately enforcing the drug war in communities of color for, for decades? Yeah, I, I mean I think what you do is first you address the the wrongs that have occurred, right? So like on the war on drugs, we went way too far, right? Is our, our drug policy right now uh, is, is failed. We have more people being incarcerated because of their color of their skin as it relates to cannabis, more so than their usage or anything criminal in nature, right? Mm -hmm. um, so our bill would allow for the auto expungement of records for simple marijuana possession, uh, not people who were uh, clearly dealing, we have a certain volume level to, to show like, you know, you're actually uh, moving uh, like a serious amount and not just personal consumption. Uh, it would be auto expungement for that. Mm -hmm. um, if you have something beyond just simple possession uh, charge, you know, uh, a nexus with just anything else, it creates a more standardized process where you getting that expunged too. So that's, that's the first part, right? We try to take care of the people who have already been affected. The next part is uh, on social equity for the businesses uh, who can participate in the program once it becomes legalized, right? So like, you know, you have an industry that people will make billions of dollars off of something that folks just recently were getting locked up for, okay? Right. You need to have participation for those folks in the industry. Uh, so we established a, um, an entity called the Social um, Equity Applicants who will essentially be uh, you know, loosely people will say these are, you know, low income minority, uh, you know, companies, uh, but more specifically, these are companies who live in areas that have been disproportionately impacted by uh, over policing and uh, prohibition of cannabis. Okay. Uh, so you can, one of the factors that allow you to be an owner in this industry is if you or your spouse, or you're the child of someone who was formerly incarcerated for cannabis, right? I think that is restorative justice right there. Right. Um, or if you live in a community that based off of the census tract has policing data that show that, yeah, you live in a community that has borne the brunt of this for the rest of us, right? Um, and that can be both, you know, black and brown communities as well as white communities, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Across the state, when you look at uh, the data, you know, there's some communities like, I'm just giving an example like Dundalk, which is much more policed than Towson, you know? Right. 
Um, and they could, if you live in Dundalk, you could participate in this program. Um, uh, we established that some of the ancillary businesses would go, uh, uh, ancillary services would be exclusively so for social equity applicants, such as transporting the private or providing security for the different venues, um, which I think is important in the scoring for people to get an application, uh, sorry, to get a license uh, mm -hmm. to be a dispensary. Uh, you get more points if you're a social equity applicant as well, too. And that's to make sure that we are, uh, just as we, as, as we are creating this in industry, we're being as intentional as possible. Um, one of the big problems we've seen across the country is that, okay, you create a, a system where diverse populations can participate in the industry, but because it is a schedule one drug, you can't go to the traditional capital markets to get right. funding. So what we do is that we will allow the uh, medical companies that qualify who want to move over to the recreational market to do so, but they'll pay a fee, a fee of equivalent of a million dollars a piece, right? That will establish a fund that the state will have where our social equity applicants can go to get the startup funding that they need to uh, construct their stores and hire their staff and everything that they need. Um, and they won't be cash strapped because it, we've also seen is that in the, in the few instances where the minority um, companies can get set up, they have to go to some venture capital firms that end up taking advantage of them, right? right. So we want to make sure that these businesses are viable for the long term. Right. Um, the other part, other than you know, uh, expungement uh, of records and letting people out, uh, the businesses themselves, and we establish the Office of Social Equity to help. These folks grow, we'll have incubators, uh, like a big brother, small brother, uh, like business relationship to help them grow. Mm -hmm. uh, we also dedicated resources on the back end, right? So like, you know, a quarter of the resources off the top would go to uh, our HBCUs. And this will be over and above the great work that our speaker has led on for our HBCUs to make sure that we're doing, being fair by them. We would dedicate another quarter to a, com a community repair fund which would go to these disproportionately impacted communities for things such as community uplift, education, workforce development, and the like, mm -hmm. um, to make sure that we don't allow for any type of, uh, you know, abuse or anything like that. It has to be uh, programs that will be approved will have to be uh, evidence proven and peer evaluated, right? Because mm -hmm. we've seen oftentimes where we have some of these type of grant programs you know, political insiders at the local level can take advantage and the benefit doesn't reach the people. We're trying to make sure that doesn't happen either. Right. 7% um, of the resources, which we think will generate about $200 million a year, that'd be $14 million, 7% of the resources will go to substance abuse and treatment, which is critically important to me. I have a lot of people in my family who have uh, struggled with substance abuse right. and the like. 3% um, goes to research. Uh, I actually think the product is under-researched on both its benefits and its concerns. Uh, and we dedicate a significant portion to educating youth and generally the public on the abuses of not just cannabis, but alcohol and tobacco as well. Right, right. That's, a, that's great. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the cannabis legalization conversation is complex conversation. Um, but I think what I, what I love about the effort you're putting in is, is you're putting this equity piece front and center, which I, I don't know, I, like I said before, I don't, I don't think any other state in the country has done that. And whether, you know, legalization passes, you know, next year or the year after, I mean, I, whenever it passes, I think it's, I, I, I think you're working on it this way has helped make sure that's part of the agenda, which is great. It's great. Yeah. 
I think, yeah. I think we have a good shot, but you know, it's like, look, it, you know, the devil's in the details. And right. I think most importantly, uh, Maryland, we have a tradition of doing things generally better than others. I think we, you know, we could have slow walked the medical cannabis a little bit better to make sure it was right. Uh, and I think we will be the model for the nation when, when we do get this done. We should be. We're definitely better than, you know, Virginia, at least. <laughs> All right. So I, I, we, we've got some final, uh, more fun questions for us here. Yeah. Uh, we'll start. We always do a pair of true or false questions. So true or false, you can still remember what it was like to get a good night's sleep. False. <laughs> too long, you know, the little baby, I, the, the longest I sleep now is about a three hour block when he's very yeah. I remember those days. I do not remember them fondly. (laughs) It is, I'll tell you, um, a big change from when I was first elected that there are so many legislators with young children, right? I mean, when I was first elected, I think the the legislature in general was older. Yeah, it is now. I was relatively unique in that I went home every night to be with my kid. And now that's a much more common thing. Yeah, well, I'll be joining you with that. Yeah, yeah, it's worth it. I, the drive is worth it uh, for for spending that extra time with your kid. Okay, uh, number the next one, true or false? Let's go Maryland. Oh yeah, let's go Maryland. M A R Y L A N D. Let Maryland will win. Of you course, were, you were at Maryland when there was still an ACC school, right? You caught the tail. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I was there before we changed over. It's still it's a little different now, but you know, I still go to the games. It's not the same. I mean, I, you know, I, I was there with like the peak of the Duke rivalry. I was there when on the, the NCAA basketball championship. Oh, man. It's, it's just not the same being in the big 10. I don't know. It's no, it's not, but um, yeah, it's just not. <laughs> I, it's, it's a better alignment for the school though, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. because as, as big as our rivalry uh, is with Duke, it's a one-sided rivalry. <laughs> oh yeah. No, oh, no. Duke didn't care about us ever. You know, <laughs> well, okay. Our last question always is uh, uh, about Maryland. So uh, it's a two-part question. Uh, the first part is, what is your favorite place in Maryland? Could be any place in the state of Maryland. Um, the second part is, what is your favorite Maryland food? Now, this does not have to be a food that's specific to Maryland. And in fact, I am banning our guests now from saying anything related to crabs because for like the first six shows, that's all anyone said. So. Okay. Favorite Maryland place for your favorite non-crab Maryland related or Maryland food? Ooh, that's a good one. All right, so I'm gonna go with the food first. Uh, one of my favorite places to eat, it's in Maryland. Uh, it's actually, it's not in my district. Uh, it's, in, it's in Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, actually Council President Nick Mosby just did a post about it not too long. It's Land of Kush. Um, it is a vegan soul food spot mm-hmm. uh, on Utah Place. You should check it out if you're ever in the city. Uh, but it's really good. When I was an organizer in the city, I used to go there for lunch. And now sometimes, like, I will intentionally plan to have lunch there and then happen to visit friends afterwards. <laughs> um, so it's really about the food and not the friends. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, one of my favorite places to go to is, this is going to sound strange, because uh, you, you got to know it, but it's, uh, it's the Soderly Plantation in St. Mary's County, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll be very brief on Soderly. Uh, you know, uh, the owner of Soderly um, gave all his slaves back in the day to his son. He didn't know his son was an avowed abolitionist. 
right? And his, his son never told him. So the day his dad died, all the slaves came under him. He freed them and gave them the land, right? So that they can like wow. be self-sufficient. So to this day, the Soderly Plantation, uh, every year, uh, both the family of, uh, you know, the white family and the descendants of the slaves like meet together uh, and talk about what it what it meant to them and their experience. And a lot of people from around come over, but that's that's not why I bring it up. Every year they have a wine festival uh, that is amazing. And um, actually there's uh, some venue in, in uh, Calvert County that makes like a, it's like an alcoholic uh, jam uh, that's just like delicious that I put on like toast and stuff. Yeah, I'll, yeah I'll that it. sounds delicious. I want some of that. <laughs> yeah. That's how they have it and it's, you know, post pandemic, uh, I might make it a thing for all of us uh, in the caucus to go down, it'd be, it'd be nice. Yeah, now I got, I've never, I've driven by, I've seen the signs for it plenty of times driving down there uh, to state parks because you know I'm a parks nerd, but yep. um, but I've never stopped. I definitely, that's an amazing story. I'm, I'm gonna have to check it out. Yeah, it's really cool. That's awesome. Okay, well, thanks for joining us tonight, ladies and gentlemen, the fantastic, the dedicated, the brilliant delegate, Jazz Lewis. Jazz, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, y'all have a blessed one. You too. Bye.